Daisy's paper is about the reasons why China declined from the mid-18th century to the mid-19th century, which was just before the Great Diversions happened. She researched both the direct and obvious causes, like corruption and population growth, and the more deep-rooted issues, like political and economic inflexibility, and the idea and practice of Confucianism. Through her paper, she also concluded the effects of this deterioration and how they shape China's policy today. Now I'm going to ask Daisy some questions about her paper. Was China doomed to decline? That is a really good question. I believe yes, because of the convergence of all the causes that I discussed in my paper. I think the factors alone would have been fine, but together they created a detrimental political, economic, and social chaos. Okay, so let's take Confucianism as an example. It had been buried in China's civilization for a long time. And it had been really helpful for China because it always reminded the emperor to be kind and to be wise when they were choosing the government officials and they were making decisions. But what happened from 1750 to 1850 was that Confucianism kind of met its bottleneck. It couldn't keep benefit in China's society without any changes to it. And that was actually what happened that caused China's declination. Along with that, there were also other reasons like what you've talked about. There was corruption, population growth, and political and economic inflexibility. So all of these causes added up and caused China's declination, which proved that China indeed was doomed to decline. So I want to learn more about your paper. Can you go into more details about how corruption affected China's declination? Yeah, of course. So I kind of gave two examples of what corruption looked like in Chinese government at that time. So one example was about Emperor Qianlong, who reigned from 1735 to 1796. And the other example was about He Shen, who was actually his most favorite government official. So Emperor Qianlong really benefited from the act of gift-giving, which was actually a Confucius tradition. Even though he spoke out openly against it, he still did it regardless. And it is obvious to see how the corruption of the emperor could spread to its subordinate government officials, which was exactly what happened to the Qing government. So the other example was about He Shen, who bribed half of the actual state total income. It was above $1 billion, which was a huge amount of money at that time. And he also recreated the social hierarchy. So what happened was that even the servants of He Shen were in the higher political position than, for example, a general of the government. So you can see how chaotic and messed up the political system was at that time. So some people might ask, why did China not fix the problem then? It wanted to, but it couldn't. And that was caused by two reasons. First, the government was itself was so scared of the chaos that would follow an anti-corruption campaign. And so the second reason was that the corrupted officers were all in really high positions, for example, Emperor Qianlong and He Shen. So the government could not afford to lose them. What about population growth? How did that contribute to the declination? So population growth is a problem even for today. But for the Qing Dynasty, it was even a bigger problem because it didn't have the technologies to possibly enlarge the ecological constraint. For China, from 1750 to 1850, the population grew from 200 million people to 500 million people. And this doubling in size not only pushed China closer to the ecological constraint, but also created administrative inefficiency. 
Data has shown that by the 19th century, it is estimated that a direct magistrate, the lowest level official responsible for all local administration, might be responsible for as many as 250,000 people. As a result, there was an extensive amount of sufferings, like famine, which created chaos and contributed to the deterioration of the empire. Can you tell us more about the political and economic inflexibility? Yeah, of course. So I think what political and economic inflexibility really mean is that China was afraid to undergo major changes that would lead to chaos, and I think this was a double-edged sword. On the positive side, the government was able to ensure order by simply fo- following Confucian protocol. However, on the negative side, this priority also caused inflexibility. Because now the government was less incentivized to try new policies. An example of the political inflexibility would be the Literary Inquisition, because from 1772 to 1793, the court purged the so-called evil books written by the loyalists of the previous dynasty, which was the Ming Dynasty, and that caused many intellectuals to turn away from politics because they want self-protection. However, there are some other experts who argue against this, and they believe that China's inflexibility was caused by its unwillingness and its stubbornness to learn from the Western culture. And this was especially supported by David Landis, who was who is a Eurocentrist and who is also the writer of Why Europe, Why Not China. And according to him, the reason why China declined was because it was inherently A bad learner. It wasn't willing to learn from the Western culture, even though they were right there. However, there was plenty of evidence that showed that China did learn from the Western culture. For example, it ex- exchanged medical knowledge, which proves the Westernization of China. And talking about economic inflexibility, that was the idea that I got from the book called "White Nations Fell," and it suggests that there are two economic systems in the world. And one is inclusive, and one is extractive. So the former creates inclusive markets, which not only gives people freedom to pursue the vocations in life that best suit their talents, but also provides a level playing field that gives them the equal opportunity to do so. But on the other hand, China had an extractive economic system, which concentrated power in the hands of a narrow elite group and placed few constraints on the exercise of this power. Even though China was in this detrimental condition, it could not possibly reform its economic system because of two reasons. First, because the political and economic structures were so interconnected, changing China's extractive economic system would also mean to fundamentally rearrange its political structure, which was a huge risk. And the second reason was that the political corruption and the totalitarian control of the emperor. Determined that the government could not possibly realize the flaws of the economic systems, which was, you know, the fundamental step to reform its policies. Can you talk about your biggest argument about Confucianism? Yeah. So my biggest argument is indeed Confucianism and how its practice and its idea affected China's declination. So one of the most obvious practice of Confucianism is. The idea of imperial examination, which I believe not only reinforced the social stringency, but also caused an inefficiency when selecting which government officials could be accepted. Even though 
The imperial examination was meant to be open for everyone, despite poor or rich. Only the rich could actually afford to have a teacher who could teach the students the Confucius idea, which showed how it is only reinforcing the social structure because only the elites and the rich can afford this education. And the other thing is that the imperial examination is actually corrupted. Because the the children of the elite and rich families can actually buy their way through the imperial examination and gain a positions in the court. And the other thing about imperial examination is that it is even not that efficient in selecting the best candidates for the positions, because it will only ask for the theoretical questions. For example, one primary document showed that one of the essay questions was. How should an emperor govern govern his state? And the person who got the highest score definitely wrote a really, really wonderful article about it. But there was no section in this imperial examination that proved that this person actually had the abilities to help the emperor to govern well. So you can see how the imperial examination was only asking for theoretical questions circling around Confucianism. So, what about social stringency? How did Confucianism contribute to that? I think the most obvious example is the status of women. So, what the Confucius scholars believed was that the men should work outside and the women should be in charge of their homes, and that created a problem and explained why China could not undergo industrialization. Because the factory production was an integrated process in which labor was needed for fairly low productivity tasks. However, the low productivity activities in the factory require very cheap labor to be fe- feasible, and this requires women and children, with their low lower opportunity costs and wages, to be part of the factory workforce. However, if women were not allowed to work outside of home, how could they even work in factories and help industrialization? Also, Confucianism also killed the incentives of the investors who were really. Businessmen to invest in factories and kind of help China to undergo industrialization, because in the traditional Confucius belief, merchants were in a really low status, and because they also believed that a merchant should only be a merchant and only take care of the stuff in his area, they had no incentives to invest in the factories and no incentives to help the textile industry, which was actually the first step of industrialization. And kind of tying that to the Great Divergence, which was when China and Western Europe began to have a huge gap, and this explained why China could not possibly catch up with Europe and why the Great Divergence happened. So your biggest argument was about Confucianism. However, Confucianism contributed a lot to the formation of China's civilization. Have you ever examined the counter arguments to your last reason? Yeah, of course. Confucianism has definitely contributed a lot to China's ideology. The religion itself advocated for the kindness of people and believed that everyone should try to be a Junzi, who is someone who is wise and moral. However, what caused China's declination was its inability to alter some of its ideas, like the status of women, the imperial examination, and etc. I really do believe that without Confucianism, China could not be what it is like today. However, there is certain aspect of con- the con- traditional Confucius ideas that also led to China's declination from 750 to 1850. From your paper, you are arguing more about the domestic reasons why China declined. How do you think the international affairs shaped China's declination? 
Yeah, so the reason why I did not go a lot into details about international issues was because I believed that those were only the symptoms of China's declination. They were not really the real reasons why China declined. But still, they definitely still contributed to the result. So I'm going to get, give two examples. One is the decline of the Canton system, and the other one is the infamous Opium Wars. So for the Canton system, you could almost see it as the symbol of China's economic strength, but it deteriorated in the early 19th century, which showed how China was beginning to lose its imperial success. So Canton was located at the southern end of China, and it was also one of the oldest and most important trading ports that directly interacted with the West. The initial attitude of the Qing court towards trade was arrogant, which kind of showed how the Canton system was the result of the, how the Chinese government attempted to take away the privileges of the foreign nations by imposing a series of regulations that allowed trading activities to happen in Canton only. But while the prosperity of the Canton system marked China's ability to regulate trade to its own advantage, its declination during the beginning of the 19th century showed China's economic deterioration. Furthermore, through fighting against Britain during the Opium Wars, China realized its weak military strength because while Britain can have cannons firing at China's ships, China's tactic was to burn its own ship in order to hopefully set the British ships on fire. And the political and economic result of China's loss was that the Western countries took full advantage of their victories by signing five unfair treaties with the Qing court. And all of the treaties resulted in either compensation of large amounts of money, loss of part of the territory, granting the most favored nation status, or allowing extraterritorial rights. What is the impact of the decline on modern-day China? I believe that those problems are still relevant to present-day China. For example, China still experiences corruption even though Chairman Jinping Xi has started a campaign against it. It is still under the influence of Confucianism as people still undervalue the role of women and it still values the importance of national college entrance ex examination, which is actually similar to SAT, which involved from the imperial examination. But I believe that overall the conditions in the nation has improved over the years and it has definitely learned from the declination from 1750 to 1850. And what is an area that you wish you could look more into? The area that I wish I could look more into is how the Manchu Chinese affected China's declination. I actually read a little bit about that in one of the books. Because the Qing Dynasty was governed by the Manchus, who, were, who invaded the real Chinese, the Han Chinese. There was an internal friction between those two ethnicities. I really wish that I could have found more resources about that because I thought it was a really interesting idea, but I also thought that it was kind of the inherent nature of the Qing, the Qing court, so I can't really argue that as a reason why China declined, but I believe that it has definitely affected China's deterioration. Thank you, Daisy, for talking to me about your paper. Thank you, Mal, for your interview.